It was years ago that I remember that I was holding the hand of a woman as she was dying in a hospital that I had never been to before. By the request of her daughter, a member here at Grace Community Church, and she had asked that there would be a pastor there to be with her mother. And so I agreed to be with her, to hold her hand as she was dying, to speak to her in whatever way that I could that might be encouraging to her. And as I watched her slip in and out of consciousness the entire time that I was present with her, that thin line between life and death that sometimes only God knows exactly what is happening, while she was awake, I asked her a question. And I think it's a vital question, and I think it's the most important question. Her daughter had told me that she was a Christian, that she was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, though her life in the church was non-existent. Her life before the people of God was very difficult to surmise. So I asked her the question, have you been forgiven? Have you been forgiven? Regardless of your pride, regardless of your past, regardless of your professions, the question is, the most important question is, have you been forgiven? Today I want to look at that most important question. I want to look at with you a question that really is the most important one that anyone could ever ask you, that you could ever ask yourself. And that is the most vital examination that you could ever perform on your own soul. And it's the easiest question, by the way, that you can deceive yourself with. It is a question that when you ask the question to yourself, you could very easily slide away from the answer, confuse yourself, dilute yourself with other thoughts, or redirect yourself onto another topic. But the question, and this vital question is, are you forgiven? Regardless of your present state of contentment, regardless of your well-thought-out theology, philosophy of life, ways of approaching this world that we live in, the question is, am I forgiven? You see, above all else, forgiveness is the deepest need of mankind. It is the deepest need of every woman and every child. It's the deepest need of all who have ever lived. You see, it's not a matter of whether or not you recognize your need for forgiveness or not. Every man and woman, of course, needs forgiveness, whether or not they have allowed themselves to recognize that. And if forgiveness is the most important need of all mankind, if forgiveness is indeed the greatest gulf that lies between mankind and the Creator, between heaven and hell, then the question is, are you forgiven? And the answer must be absolutely imperative. Alexander McLaren, one of the great preachers, expositors of the last hundred years, makes this really helpful remark to kind of set this in perspective. He says, you say that you have received in the depths of your spirit the touch of his forgiving hand, blotting out your sins. 
nobody can tell whether you have or not except observing your life. Does it look as if your profession was true? The world takes its notions of Christianity a great deal more from you, its professors, than it does from the preacher or apologist. You are the books of evidence that most men read. See to it that your lives worthily represent the redeeming power of your Lord and that men looking at your beautiful, holy, and gentle life may be constrained to say there must be something in that religion that makes him such a man, end quote. In other words, He's saying that the way the world knows whether or not you're forgiven, the way that you know whether or not you're forgiven, is by looking at your life, is by looking at the way you conduct yourself day in and day out when you're with others and when you're by yourself. It's not really an affirmation that can be true solely on just what others say about you. It also must be something that's determined by how you look at your own life objectively, how you act, how you think, what you do. In other words, there are signs that tell other people whether or not you truly are forgiven. I want to introduce to you today the way that you can know if you're forgiven. Seems like a vital thing. I want to let you know today the way that you can tell whether or not you are forgiven, whether or not you are going to be in the arms of Christ or whether or not you shall slip from his hand. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to know if your sins have been blotted out. And here it is. The way to know if you are forgiven can be seen in what you fear. In what you fear. Open your Bibles with me to the most succinct but powerful expressions, I think, in the Bible of this theme that really is the heart of Scripture, man's hope and forgiveness of God. Go to Psalm 130. We're skipping ahead. We're mostly going through the Psalms one at a time from the very beginning, but I wanted to skip ahead this morning to Psalm 130, a psalm that tells us that forgiveness brings fear. Forgiveness brings fear. Let me read it to you. Again, I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Bible. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I call to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, oh, yeah, oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word I do wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, The watchman for the morning, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
What we have here in just eight very short verses before us is the most succinct answer to the question, how can I know that I'm forgiven? And the answer here is, if you fear the Lord. If you fear the Lord. Verse 4, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Those who have tasted, those who understand the forgiveness of God, listen to this, express the fear of God. If you know the forgiveness of God, you live within the fear of God. This is so amazing. This is so inescapable from what the psalmist has just written. In other words, the psalm is teaching us that no one fears the Lord like those who have experienced this forgiving love, this love that places in your heart a fear for the one who granted you the forgiveness. It's saying that the gratitude for receiving the pardon that we get from God himself for our sins produces a fear and a reverence of God more than the dread that we have of him as judge and inspired by his punishment. In other words, the fear of God that is produced in the heart when a man or woman is forgiven by God is one of the most tremendous, most unexpected expressions of God's forgiveness that we could ever, ever know. I want you to think about that thought. I want you to contemplate that if you've ever even thought that thought before. Because what we're going to look at this morning is just this issue of forgiveness and fear. I want to show you the link between forgiveness and fear. So I've titled the message this morning, The Fear That Forgiveness Brings. The Fear That Forgiveness Brings. And I want that unexpected kind of reality to act as the focal point of our time because I want you to know this morning if you've been forgiven. Today we're going to find two ways, just two ways that this amazing forgiveness of God has produced amazing fear of God so that you might know you're forgiven. I think that's the greatest, greatest thing that could ever come out of a service this morning. That I came to church not knowing if I was forgiven and I left the service sure, assured of my salvation. That the greatest thing that could ever happen to any of us would be that we would be completely convinced, assured in our hearts of our forgiveness. So here are these two expressions of the fear of God that arise from the forgiveness of God. And if you will kind of act as a checklist for you to check off to make you sure that you see, according to this text, if you have tasted the forgiveness of God and it will be demonstrated in how you fear God in very two basic ways. But before I give you those two basic ways, real quick, my goal is, and I've said it already, it's the goal of every pastor. It's the goal of everyone who preaches the Word of God. And that is, by the end of our time, you might know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you have great hope in the truth and fear God all the more. Because my goal at the end of this teaching time is that you're going to be exposed in your own heart, either number one, that you're a sinner that needs forgiveness, or number two, that you're a savior who knows he or she is forgiven and that glorious assurance of salvation floods your heart. But either way, the question is, are you forgiven? So the first characteristic, now that I have your attention, the first characteristic is of someone who's been forgiven 
is that they demonstrate the fear of God, number one, when they cry to God in distress. You can tell that you have the forgiveness of God because of the fear of God when, number one, you cry to God in distress. And we're going to see that in the first four verses of Psalm 130. Again, a song of ascents. Look with me to verse 1. Out of the depths I call to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this psalm, but just so you know, it is probably one of the most famous psalms in the history of the church. It is one of the most famous psalms. Martin Luther said that this psalm is a Pauline psalm because of the great gospel that lied within it. He composed one of his greatest hymns that he ever wrote around the miraculous words of this beautiful cry, so much so that it was from the heart of the psalms. It was actually even sung at his funeral. Yes, John Wesley also claimed that it was this psalm that was sung as an anthem that caused his heart to be driven with such great emotion that on the same day it was strangely warmed after reading Luther's commentary on Galatians. John Owen, the famous great theologian and Puritan mind, read verse 4 of Psalm 130, And after reading verse 4 concerning the fear of forgiveness, he set out and wrote a massive 429-page exposition of this psalm, devoting three-quarters of it to verse 4 alone. Sounds like Calvin with Job, doesn't it? So the reason I bring this up, the reason of this outpouring of effort and emotion from these pillars in the church, Martin Luther, John Wesley, John Owen, is because this song is rooted in and the circumstance of its composition is in this lone cry of one man for God in a moment of distress. This psalm is about a man, could be, in your case, if you're a woman, if you're a child, it's about a person who finds himself very far from God, very alone from God, deep in the awareness of sin, crying out to the only source of forgiveness that can possibly be true. It's in this that we see this this picture, this perfect picture of all men and all women when they are confronted with their sin, when they're confronted with their need for forgiveness and they cry out. It's unlike Psalm 129 before it that tells us that the sin that he cries out to God about, this is not defined. This sin, whatever it is that's going on in the heart of the psalmist, is not given to us. It's as if he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, through this channel of prayer to God, the one he knows can help him because he's so engulfed in his own pain, he's so engulfed in his own threat of condemnation that he's too engulfed in it even to mention what the sin is. He just distinguishes not the sin, but it doesn't matter. He distinguishes the fact that he's in distress. And all the people who read this psalm forever since it was composed, have that same blank slate. When they read it, they say, certainly this must be speaking to me. Certainly this is my heart cry. This is my wound. This is my pain as well. 
The title of the psalm, as you saw, says it's a song of ascents. And that it is. It's a song that was sung as it risedly comes out of the depth, not only to go to Jerusalem, but out of the depth of the anguish of the heart of the person who needs assurance. I'm crying out to God because I know I'm in the depth of the deepest place of my own depravity. I see myself for who I really am. And as I'm climbing toward Jerusalem, historically in the context, I'm also climbing out of the muck and mire that I found myself engulfed in. It contains the most passionate prayer of a man who is so distressed by a sense of God's anger, by a sense of God's uh, sin, uh, the sin of he has committed against God. It is marked by an earnest turning to God in repentance and seeking forgiveness. That's why he says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Out of the depths, O Yahweh, I cry. Now, as we begin just this look, as your mind is kind of starting to put these pieces together, what is this question? Why is this important? Is that what the psalm is saying? As you start to process that, I understand that it's very easy to say, is it not, that I fear the Lord. It's, easy, it's very easy in the context of a church, especially a church as theologically sound as Grace Community Church, to sit there and say, I fear the Lord. I fear God. But the point is, and, and the hard thing is that fearing God being manifest in the, in the heart of a believer who is, who is producing obedience is a difficult thing. It's not a cerebral thing. It's not a knowledge in the mind. It's never expressed uh, in, uh, as opposed to the heart and the senses. It's never expressed in just a, a mental ascent. It's always emotional and behavioral, if you remember the teaching that we did on repentance. I want you to turn to Exodus 20. I have a few verses here I want to kind of prod your memory with. Remember in the Exodus, this is a profound section when the commandments are given to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 20, if you go to verse 18, you see a, a site that could be a sermon in and of itself and has been for many, many thousands of years. Exodus 20 verse 18 And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people perceived it and they shook and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, speak to us and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. Do you see that? That the Lord is here to test you to make sure that the fear of him is with you so that you will not sin. Go to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. As you see this same thought, this idea of the fear of God still all the way through Scripture in just a few portions. If you go to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah 32, look with me in verses 39 and 40, verses 39 and 40. Verse 38 starts, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God, Jeremiah 32. 
And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will cut an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Go forward just to Jeremiah 33, just a few verses, and look in verse 8. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, by which they have transgressed against me. And it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and beauty before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will be in dread and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. This is a very special kind of fear. It's a fear that some theologians have spoken of as the fear that overcomes fear. The fear that overcomes fear. So the first way this fear of the Lord, this forgiving fear manifests is through crying out to God. The midst of distress When you are face-to-face with your sin, when you're face-to-face with your impending death, whether you be young or you be old, when you come face-to-face with the fact that you are human, and because of your humanness you are fallen, and because of your fallenness you need forgiveness, when you come to that place, in the midst of your desperation, in the midst of your despair, the psalmist, as if he were us, cries out to God. Therefore, crying out to God is evidence of forgiveness. It's an evidence of fear. But there's parameters to this cry, and I want to kind of give you some things to think about. Crying out to God, again, back to Psalm 130, this out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh, has some boundaries to it, and I want you to think through it with me. Number one, crying out to God is a demonstration of our recognition of sin. The psalmist is recognizing his sin against the Most High God, his transgression. Again, it was Martin Luther that said, crying is nothing but a strong and earnest longing for God's grace, which does not arise in a person unless he sees in what depth he is lying. Crying out from the depth represents more than just being in a bad place. It represents more than just having the world seemingly turn against you. It's, it's being overwhelmed. It's being so afraid in your boots that you are facing death. It's so afraid that if you die, you will not be with the Lord. You will not go to heaven. You will be in hell. There is, there is such a place of such need and such bottomless kind of sunkenness, such an abyss in your own soul that you cry out for that which only God can grant. And the reason he is crying out, it says in verse 3, is because of iniquities and sins. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, because of my iniquities, I reach out, I cry out, my supplications are given to you. Because I am guilty, and because the psalmist is in the midst of a flood of wrongdoing, It has swept him up to a dangerous slope and he's fallen too many times and he doesn't believe that he can stand again. And so he cries out. And what does it mean by the depths? He's speaking of the great misery of distress, the great misery 
that comes from the recognition that he sinned against God. Put your mind around that. Think through that. That is how we get into the depths of the dark abyss. It's by sin. It's by unbelief. You don't have to turn there, but that's, that's what Jonah says in the second chapter as he's speaking. He realizes that he, as he is literally thrown into the depths of the sea, that his sin engulfs him. It's not just the waters around him. It's the recognition that he's running from God. This is the depth in which the believer can be cast. This is the depth in which the psalmist finds himself. It was the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce that said, If we are to be forgiven, we must first recognize our sin. I think that seems almost commonplace for us to think that, but I don't know if sometimes we grasp it. He goes on, We need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is not an outmoded theological construct, but a terrible and impending reality. We need to come out of our sad fantasy world and begin to tremble before the awesome holiness of an almighty judge, end quote. So if you are forgiven, you know this lowliness. You know what this is like to be in this kind of despair. You realize the depth and how low a man or a woman can go? How low must a man go before he can grasp this truth? Well, think with me. First, there must be a depth of poverty. There must be a depth where one is stripped, possibly, of all earthly possessions, of everything that has ever been given to you, everything that you love. I've seen men and women who have lost almost everything and still have not cried out. So there must also be a depth of not just poverty, but sorrow. Friend after friend, people come to you, people who they thought one time, at one point you thought were those who could come around you and support you, and they depart from you. They become like Judas's to you, and they fall away from you, and they carry you down and down and further down into the depth of the abyss. And then there's these depths after depths of mental darkness. We see this so much Today, people speaking of this this mental kind of soulish hell that overcomes them where they are so sorrowful and so very in despair that they cannot even look up or cry. But the most horrible depth into which a man's soul can descend of all of these poverty, sorrow, loss of friends, mental darkness is the descent of sin itself the descent of sin. It is sin that is an outrage against God. It is sin that's an outrage even to our own bodies, our own selves. Why do you want to die? Where finally the man or woman falls and it's there where they feel that there's no bottom and you keep falling and keep falling. Each opening depth reveals a greater depth. And so the question is, what can you do? We can simply cry. Out of the depths, I call to you, O Yahweh, I call to you. That is the mark, the first mark of the one who fears God. Why do I say that? Because everyone prays, everyone prays, those who say they know God, those who admit that they don't know God, everybody prays. 
There's an old saying, no one is an atheist in a foxhole. Everybody during wartime appeals to God. There was a man who I was away in Arizona this last week. First time I've been away from Grace Church like in three years. Don't plan to do it again. Um, (laughs) But he told me that there was in his life, in his ministry, a woman who was saying, I've prayed about this man that I want to marry. He's not a Christian, but I love him, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I feel like it's okay to go forward because I've prayed. Everybody prays, but very few cry. Very few call out. Of those who do cry to God, of those who do call out, the majority would say, I've learned to cry in the depths of my soul. I've studied it there. I have prayed it before many times, but it wasn't until I was carried very, very deep down into the depths, that's when I cried. It is not too much to say that we don't know what prayer is even like until we've cried. We don't even know what prayer is supposed to be for until that we have gone to the depths. It's not too much. One commentator says, we seldom rise until we have gone very deep. So it doesn't really matter where we are when we pray. It doesn't matter, but we must pray. When we pray from the depth, it's never more real than that. It's never more vivid. Deep places beset deep devotion. Spurgeon said, pearls lie deep. The deeper you go, the more worth there is. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a second way to look at this cry. The recognition of sin is not enough. Also, you must have a reliance on the Savior. If you cry, according to this psalmist, if you're going to cry, not only is it a recognition of sin, but a reliance on the Savior. And we see that in verse 2. Out of the depths I have cried to you. Out of the depths I have cried to you. What does he say then? Oh, Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one whom I love. He cries to the Lord. He's not crying to a man. Man can't save him. He's not crying to the stars. The stars cannot save him. He's not crying to anyone other than the only one who can hear him, the only one who can pay attention to him, for he will bend heaven to hear his child. This is the amazing reality of those who have been forgiven. They are heard by God. God hears your cry. The Bible never gives a sinner assurance that a prayer that they might utter will be heard, but God says he hears the prayer of all who seek him for salvation. Now, I think this text teaches us that it is better for our prayer to be heard than answered. Think about this for a moment. Like the woman I was telling you, oh, I've prayed to God about this man who is not a believer. And through that prayer, you know, she got an affirmation in her own heart that he was the one. I was trying to teach or tell this man how to, by the way, we all know you can't marry an unbeliever, right? Okay, just in the Lord only. Just put it out there. Um, I, had, I had four sessions, and the sessions that I taught to this single group was, Uh, The most important, the only vital relationship in life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the only compatible or the only acceptable person to marry is a Christian. The only form of compatibility necessary is the love of Christ. And then I talked about men leading and women following, and that's when it all went down. (laughs) So 
so you can pray for them. Never changes. The first three is all buy-in. We got buy-in. Second two, not so much. It's important to note that it's better for our prayer to be heard than answered. If the Lord were to make an absolute promise to answer all our requests, it might be rather a curse to us than a blessing. Think about it. For that would be casting the responsibility of our lives upon ourselves, and we would be placed in a very anxious position. But now the Lord hears our desires, and that is enough. The only wish that he would be to grant us is that you hear us with your infinite goodness and infinite mercy, that it would be good for us and for your glory. So vital, so important to remember. And it's also important to note that the name of God is used eight times in these eight verses. I don't know if you've noticed that. Eight times in eight verses, it's either uh, Yahweh or Yah or Adonai. Verse two, the word Lord here is Adonai, declaring his lordship. Verse 1, of course, is Yahweh, which marks his unchangeable faithfulness, promise of deliverance. In verse 3, it's Yah, which speaks of God's terrible majesty. By the use of all three of these names, we have the picture of the power of God, the magnitude of God, and the power and magnitude of the sinner's reliance upon God. This man is a sinner. This, this man needs a Savior. So look at me, look at with me what he says. First, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Hear my voice, verse 2. Though it be faint, though I can barely speak, hear my voice. Though it be broken because of my distress, hear my voice. Though it be unworthy on account of my iniquities, hear my voice. His reliance is on the Savior, which means he's recognized his own sin when he cries, but he's also recognized the greatness of the Savior to whom he cries. Verse 3, if you should mark iniquities, If you should mark iniquities, oh, Yah, who could stand? This is where the fear of God is seen in you. We're all introduced here into this this seriousness of a criminal court. We're all here looking at a judge that's seated on the bench, and the guilty party is standing at the bar covered with some kind of capital offense, and the witnesses are giving evidence against him to the judge, and the judge is listening attentively to everything which is said. In order to assist his memory, he takes notes of all the important parts. Now, if that was the Lord's model for us, what would be the result? Suppose if he was seated on his throne in flexible righteousness, taking notes, the pen in his hand, looking at us, nothing is omitted, nothing from the day you were born to the day you are now. Every sin is marked down with this peculiar, deserved condemnation. The evidence against us is clear. The copious, overwhelming notes that he would take, the mere whisper is sufficient to determine our doom. The judge has no alternative but to pronounce the awful sentence. We must die as a criminal. Verse 3, if thou should markest iniquities, O Yah, who can stand? If that were true of you. The literal meaning of this word iniquity is a thing which is not equal or not fair. Whatever breaks the command of God is not equal. It does not match with him who he is or who, who, what he represents. It doesn't hold to the highest level of the law. It's out of proportion to everything that God has done. Therefore, sin is an unequal thing. It's a fitting Uh, nothingness. It is a discouraging everythingness. It's not fair. It's not fair 
to that God upon whom empire is a trespass. It's not fair that you've done, that I've done this kind of iniquity. It's not fair to your fellow men. It's not fair to your wife or your children or anyone who spends time with you. It's not fair to yourself to become this person. Your happiness lies not in yourself. It lies in obedience. And therefore, we call this sin iniquity. But, and this is the great news, if, 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 verse 3, if you should mark iniquities, look at verse 4. How significant of a word, but. If, if you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand, but, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. The scenario of the judge, the scenario of the copious notes, all of that is how we see this world, but that's not true with you to those you've forgiven. Spurgeon says, it's as if you heard justice screaming, let the sinner die, and the fiends in hell howling for your descent, let him perish, and the nature itself groaning beneath his weight, the earth weary with carrying him, and the sun tired with shining upon the traitor, the very air sick with finding breath for one who only spends it in disobedience to God. The man is about to be destroyed to be swallowed up quick, then suddenly there comes this thrice-blessed but, which stops the reckless course of ruin, puts forth its strong arm bearing a golden shield between the sinner and the destruction, and pronounces these words, but there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. I think there's a gross miscalculation in the world that we live in that thinks of the mercy of God makes men bold to sin, that the more merciful he is, the more bold I am to commit iniquities. But if you understand the cry to God, if you understand the cry of God, of the sinner to God, then you see it's not to make us bold in our sin, but it's to make us fear the great His mercy is, the greater his mercy, the greater our fears because there's mercy with him and there's mercy with him because he's to be feared. You are the one that has forgiven me, therefore I know what you've forgiven me of and only you could do it, therefore I humble myself before you. There are those who are forgiven. They do fear God because they see him as the only source of forgiveness. He is the object of their cry in the greatest hour. So the question with just the remaining time that we have is, do you Fear God. Do you have proof in your salvation that you've been forgiven? And that forgiveness is proven by how you cry out to him in your distress. There's another proof, the last proof, and we'll go through this quickly. The second characteristic of someone who's been forgiven is not only that they cry to God in distress, but number two, they wait on God for deliverance. They wait on God for deliverance, verse 5 and 8. Let me read them to you again, Psalm 130. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. The watchman for the morning, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who redeemed Israel from all his iniquities. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. The Lord's people are always, though, who wait. We wait for the first advent. We, waited for the, we wait for the second advent. We wait for perfect sanctification. We wait for 
the depths we wait for, uh, the, the, the broadness of Christ's love to be shattered, uh, put forth in our hearts to the point where we over, are overcome. We are waiting to be happier, to be content in Him. We've cried and we wait. We cry and we wait. I always tell people when they have a job in the restaurants and they're waiters, I think we mentioned this even when we went out, it's like, what a great job for a Christian to be a waiter. Because that's all we do is wait. We wait. We wait on people. We wait on God. We wait on people. We wait on God. We've always been waiters. So here's a picture in this, this verse of a man who's waiting, and he's, it's a striking picture. He's, he's on the, ri- the ridge of a journey. He's looking onward to his way. He's standing on his tiptoes, and therefore, he's needing something to lean out on and to support him as he looks. And the thought here is he's saying, I'm waiting for the Lord spiritually, my deepest thoughts, the very center of who I am. I wait for the Lord. My soul, inner soul doth wait, and I rest I keep my focus on what you have said, O God, and my soul waits in your word, for it's in your word that I hope. The theological use of the word wait and hope is especially in the books of Isaiah and the Psalms. You have two verbs here that are synonymous that speak of trust as an activity that, it is, that must and does find its completion in time and enduring hardship and future deliverance. It speaks of a trust that finds its strength and courage from the certainty of what is yet to be. He waits individually, this man, and corporately, and I'm going to do this quickly. The implication is I am waiting expectantly with all that is within me. I am waiting with everything that I am. I am waiting with my whole heart and my whole being. I wait with my soul. And if you're not waiting, looking at your watch, if you're not waiting, tapping your foot, you're not waiting, mumbling under your breath, when is this going to happen? You are waiting with your soul. You are waiting in the doctor's office when they come back with the results of your biopsy that they took from that lump that they discovered. You are waiting when your soul, when you're staring at the phone because the firm told you that something's wrong with your job and there's an unscheduled meeting waiting to happen. That's when you are waiting. It's a waiting that consumes you. I'll never forget, Tommy was being born and I was asked to leave the delivery room for a moment to wait in the hall. And I'm telling you, Every scrub that went by me, every shadow, I was fixed on that door. I was fixed on that door. It was only five feet away, but you could have not interrupted me. My, my, my soul was on that door with my wife and my unborn child in that room. That's waiting with your soul. What comes next? And when you wait with your soul, two things happen. Time stands still. You, you, you are wondering... You're not wondering if you're getting older. You're not wondering if, if anything's ever going to work out in life. You're just fixed on that one truth, and then nothing distracts you, no matter who it is. No matter, no matter if the entire hospital went before you, nothing is more important than waiting with your soul. In fact, so much so that he repeats it twice here, in the beginning of verse 5 and the verse 6 as well, and in his word, I do hope. And in his word, I do hope. Waiting without hope is crushing, but waiting with hope is invigorating. How does a watchman wait as he speaks here? More than the watchman for the morning. 
the watchman could be a Levite waiting to offer God morning sacrifices in the temple. It could be um, another situation perhaps of the towers. They're waiting for the dread of missing the moment where they were waiting to do what God requires, whatever the situation be, whether the town, whether it be the Levites, they are waiting and serving God, but they knew to not wait is a dangerous thing. There's so much more that I have, and time is away from us, but I will just tell you this. I remember my dad telling a story in World War II when they used to go out on the ships and they would stare out into the night sky where it was so black you could see nothing, even the hand in front of your face. And they would do that because even in the darkness, they wanted their eyes to get used to what was around them because they were looking for the enemy. Well, in this case, he's looking for the dawn, and he's looking for the coming of the Son of Man, and he's looking for that which is wonderful. Notice he's waiting for the Lord. The fear of God, verse 4, makes him wait. Verse 5, makes him manifest in his waiting. The object of that waiting is God. He's not waiting for test results and we can leave here. He's not waiting for the right person to come along. He's not waiting for the enemy. He's waiting for the Lord. He's waiting for the only one that can forgive. And just a note, the God who he fears, who possesses the forgiveness he needs, is found in the word that he hopes in. You see that? He's waiting for the Lord in the hope. He says, I wait for the Lord more than anything. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman. I wait for Yahweh. And why? Because Yahweh is revealed in the word. I want to end with this thought as we come to the conclusion of this wonderful psalm. On September 21st at sundown, services at synagogues all over the United States, memorials, healing, our place called the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And one rabbi said, thinking of forgiveness, Yom Kippur is the most important holiday of the Jewish year. This is the day that which a man asks God for forgiveness. This is the day that man asks God for forgiveness. Jesus Christ would have you know that this truly is the day that you should ask for forgiveness. Not as the Jews think of it today. Jesus Christ would have you place your faith in his redemption that only he can provide and the sacrifice that he offers on Calvary. And he would have you never come to ask forgiveness just one day because you have been forgiven. He would have you know that you must fear the one that can both kill the body and soul in hell so he alone might have the sole power to redeem and resurrect. He would have you fear his forgiveness and cry out to him and wait for his coming. It has been said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. Let's pray. Father, we come before you because that's our greatest need. Every man and woman here, every child here, we need to be forgiven. And for those of us who have been forgiven because we have placed our entire soul at the feet of the cross, because we have seen Jesus Christ as the only one capable 
past, present, and future to ever be able to impute to us a righteousness we do not deserve and be taking on the sin of us which he did not deserve. So we ask, Lord, in the, in the humility of this moment, for this psalm to be a psalm for all of us that we would sing, that we now know a fear that has been produced in us by forgiveness, and it is a fear of God, of you, that takes away the fear of man. Bless the teaching of your word to those who are here. In Christ's name, amen.